Let's uh, begin with a word of prayer. Father, I just want us to pause for a moment, all of us, and recognize that in our world, a land just not too far south of us has been shaken greatly. And people's lives have been um, devastated. You tell us in your word, Psalm 46, that though the earth be shaken, the foundations are kind of taken from beneath us. There still is a river that runs. There's a hope. There's a God. And you say, be still and know that I am God. I'm going to ask you just as you're kind of quietly in this moment of prayer. Would you just take a moment and pray for those people in Haiti? Would you take a moment and pray for the medical people who are putting in incredible hours? For every person bringing aid. For nations seeking to understand how best to get involved. For relief organizations. Just take a moment and bring your prayer before God. Father, we ask that you would, in the midst of this tragedy, work miraculously in hearts and lives of people. And where the foundations of this nation have been broken and collapsed, we would pray that you would build from within it a foundation that is good and, and uh, is strong and solid and that as a people they would look to you and, and, and they would know your presence and power in the suffering as well as in the years to come. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. So what do you think about this whole idea of God and earthquakes and judgment? I'm sure you've had conversations with people. Let me read to you. Some of you have heard this many times, but um, Wednesday morning, uh, early in the morning, I get time.com top stories of the day. And the very first one that popped up on my little handheld device was, Why is Pat Robertson blaming Haiti? By Dan Fletcher. The Reverend Robertson turned heads with his appearance in the 700 Club on Wednesday when he blamed the Haitian history for Tuesday's devastating earthquake. In short, Robertson claimed that the quake was divine retribution for a pact with the devil that was sworn long ago. And again, this person, I don't know where he stands in his, uh, in his faith. A statement he was audacious enough to make while the 800 number for disaster relief scrolled at the bottom of the broadcast. Here's the clip. And so he quotes Robertson, as you know, Christy, something happened a long time ago in Haiti and people might not want to talk about it, but they were under the heel of the French, you know, the Napoleon III and whatever, and they got together and swore a pact with the devil. And they said, we will serve you if you get us free from the French. True story. And so the devil said, okay, it's a deal. Now the writer again, so what was Robertson referring to? The theory that Haiti is a nation built on a pact with the devil has circulated on a number of websites, each track tracing back to the apocryphal tale of Haitian voodoo priests sacrificing a pig, drinking its blood in 1791 in order to secure Satan's aid in expelling the French occupation. 
In return, the priests are said to have promised Haiti to Satan for the next 200 years. So goes the story. The French were soon beat back, and in 1804, Haiti became an independent nation. And then the author continues, This isn't the first time that Robertson has shocked people by speaking off the cuff. After then-Israeli Prime Minister Ariel Sharon suffered a stroke in January 2006, Robertson posited that it was punishment from God. Back in 2006, he predicted that there would be a nuclear terrorist attack in the U.S. He urged the assassination of Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez in 2005, and he makes some more statements. That day, Wednesday, we had prayer. Kind of, We moved it from the first Wednesday of the month to the second Wednesday, and it so happens that it's that Wednesday, so we meet here at 6 a.m. and a group of us pray. And it's been exciting because there's more and more people coming. I can't believe it's 6 a.m. They're coming up and we're praying. And again at noon and then again at 6 p.m. we're we're praying. And and you can know what the focus of our prayer was, a lot of it. It was for Haiti. And I had read that and as I kind of just going through that in my heart and mind, I really didn't say much about it to anybody. But later in that day, I'm listening to KFAN, trying to get away from some of the Haiti kind of stuff thinking about the Viking cowboy game. Anybody thought about that this week? And I'm listening to an irate DJ, Dan Barrero. Not uncommon for him to be irate. Hoping to listen to a little Viking cowboy pregame talk. Instead, they're talking about Haiti and Robertson. These are his words, Dan Barrero. It's jerks like this that give religion a bad name. What kind of merciful God kills innocent children trapped in poverty who had nothing to do with a devil pact and even a pact, even if a pact with the devil was made? I'm just getting, we're getting to the guts of things here, okay? This is what's going on, people are thinking. So, so what do you think about this whole thing about God's judgment? What's your opinion when you stand by the water cooler at work? What's your opinion, some of you in, in junior high, high school, middle school, as people, you know, whether you're in a locker room or whether you're talking in the hallway, you know, maybe you talk a little bit about this. Or what is your opinion when you think about this as you're, you're talking with your friend or your neighbor or you're at some kind of club and you're working out? Whatever you're doing, what comes up? On Monday night, Prior to this happening, I sat with my life group and I um, said, let's talk a little bit about Micah. And we started talking and we started talking about judgment. And, and, and we began to ask questions about that. You know, how do you know when God's in something judging and, and what's, what's that look like? And we all kind of came to some kind of conclusion that it's probably good in some ways to, to kind of step back and say there's kind of a mystery to this whole thing. Little did I know on Monday night that next day there would be a 7.0 earthquake in Haiti and that Robertson would proclaim this and and people would be up in arms and and I would be preaching this Sunday morning up about a small town boy named Micah who proclaimed a message to his people Israel that a nation Assyria was going to come in and God was going to use it to devastate and judge them and I thought to myself as I was thinking through that I wish I had chosen to study the gospel of Mark and the life of Christ. What in the world were you thinking, Kevin? And maybe God. So what does the word of God have to say about judgment? Not me, not Pat Robertson, not Dan Barrero. I hope that's what you're concerned about, because that's really what I'm concerned about. I, I look at this passage of Scripture, and, and I just title it The Discipline and Judgment of God. 
And I thought, well, what are some lessons we can take from this? And I'm no way going to answer all the questions you have. And, and uh, I'm going to just do the best I can with this passage. And you can take more. You can read more if you want about it. But the very first lesson I want to share with you comes from these first few verses. You just turn in the Bible to Micah. Or if you want to see on the screen, we have it up there. Micah chapter 1, verse 2. We talked about who Micah was last week. And so if you want to know more about Micah, the times that he was talking in, you can get that tape and listen to that or iTunes. But the very first lesson I want to share with you comes from this passage of Scripture, verse 2 through 4. And here's the truth. Here's the lesson. God judges. God judges. And at this point, I'm not saying anything about who, what, or when God judges. It's just the fact that God's Word makes it very clear that He is a God who judges. In an age and a day when we would often want to just talk about the good, love, mercy, and grace of God, the Word of God is clear. God judges. In fact, as you look at this, you cannot deny the picture that God is in heaven and He is on His throne. He is a king, and like any king, the king has the ability to make judgments. And God's character is just, and he is fair, and he is true, and he is faithful. His patience is beyond measure. He is merciful beyond anyone we can know. He is gracious beyond what you could ever imagine. Here is this God that Micah, by his name, says, who is a God like this? That's what the theme of our worship has been this morning. Who is a God who is like this? Who is this incomparably uncommon God who has called us to live as people, this incomparably uncommon walk with him? This God who is so Unlike anyone we know, is everything good and everything loving, and yet he also is a God who uses his anger and his wrath and who will also step in and judge. And that's the picture you get here, as God warns about his coming judgment. And in this passage of Scripture, he's warning Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom Israel, and he's warning Jerusalem, the capital city of the southern kingdom Judah. And verse 1 begins, hear. You'll see, listen. Verse 3, look. He is trying to grab your attention. And he's trying to grab the attention of the people of his day. He probably went into Jerusalem and spoke this message. He probably spoke this message all throughout Judah. He may have even gone up to Samaria and there he is there and also spoke this message. And he said, hear, O peoples of all of you. Listen, O earth, and all you who are in it that the sovereign Lord may witness against you or give evidence against you. Like he's in a court of law. Let me just bring before you the evidence, he says. The Lord from his holy temple. Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and, and he treads the high places of the earth. It could specifically refer to in that culture in that day, um, not just the nation of Israel, but the nations around it, the high places were those places where they would set up altars and idols and, and they would do their sacrificing to their gods. These were the places that were not just the high places where they would go and they would worship other gods, but it was also in this sense the high places of one's heart, one's pride. One's arrogance. If you read Isaiah, who is his contemporary, he says it again and again that God is coming. And he will level those places, those arrogant, prideful, high places. And then he gets this picture. The mountains melt beneath him and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. The image that, that Micah has is this God who is, and it's the reality of this God, this, his spiritual presence 
is so thick and powerful, his glory so magnificent, that even his angels who come from his presence, who stand before a person, they cannot help but fall to the ground in, in, in fear and trepidation, trembling. Well, here is the God in all his spiritual reality coming down out of heaven, and you see him coming down to heaven, and it says that the, the earth just melts away like wax. The way I would look at it is this, the Rockies become the Muddies. The Grand Canyon becomes a little, little crevice in the presence of God. He wants us to get the image of this incredible, holy, powerful, mighty, glorious God who is so holy that no sin can stand in His presence. Even that which is physical reality has to actually recede when He comes. And the picture is God leaving His throne in heaven to judge the earthly temple representing God's presence is about to actually be crushed because it doesn't represent his presence anymore. The judge is on his way. Reminds me of my father. Uh, when my brother and I had a room downstairs in the basement from where my parents' room was, which was up, up above, and we were probably about 8 and 10 years of age. And, and once in a while, we would, you know, on a school night, start messing around. It's tough to put two boys with that kind of energy in a room together. And every once in a while, we'd hear this, Boys! It would boom out this voice through, the, through these little vents. Cut it out. And we would tremble and get in our own beds and freeze and get quiet for a little bit. And the noise would start making, we'd start making more noise. And all of a sudden it would be, boys, go to sleep now. And we'd be quiet for a little bit. And it would start getting noisy again. And all of a sudden, you'd hear something. And I said, okay, boys. And you'd hear a foot hit the floor. That's it. One more time, and I'm coming down. And you don't want that. And we didn't. There's no getting around this truth. God judges. It's as if he's, he's putting his foot to the floor. And he's pounding. He's saying, judgment. I, I will come and I will judge that which is wrong and that which is high standing against me. That which is selfish that, that, that turns everything inward so that the, that others are hurt and, and, and your selfishness destroys even not just those around you but yourself. God is just and fair and without that reality this world would be full of chaos. And we can't get around that. We cannot get around the reality that he is a judge. Think of the Viking-Dallas game today, right? Every game has refs. What do you think about it when you talk about they have line judges, backfield judges, right? Why do you think they now have instituted slow motion, instant replay to make certain that the play was called just right. Just imagine if this game today was like 34 years ago when the Vikings and Cowboys play. No one wants another Drew Pearson, Nate Wright bump, right? Cheater, yeah, see? There is still, it just amazes me. People will scream bloody murder. They're upset to this day about supposed push-off that was not fair. I mean, in life, when we think of it, we want judges and we want the, the, the playing field to be fair. We want justice. And we cry out when it, 
not right even in a game as silly as the... Well, maybe not so silly, right? So I just want you to think about it. This whole talk, when you get to the water cooler and people are starting to talk about this God, yet God does judge. And in all of life, we would be upset if it wasn't fair. You're not really happy when, when the person next to you, if you studied really hard and you turn in a paper, you get an A, and they look at your paper and they get the same thing using your answers. That's not right. And if we scream bloody murder at an infraction on a missed call in a football field, think of the blood-curdling cries coming to the throne of God because of the oppression and abuse of people against people. Don't you bet that God wants to step in and will step in and according to his word does step in to stop it. And at a certain point, the heavenly ref blows the whistle. He steps forth as a judge. He says, here, listen, look. Now, I want to say this. I'm not saying anything at this point about Haiti or who or what or anything, right? Just the, the truth is God's a judge. Now I want you to look at what he judges. And we're going to spend more time on this. So this week, we're not going to spend a lot on this. But God judges sin. That's exactly what you find in Micah chapter 1, 5 through 7. See, Micah is not talking after the fact of judgment here. He is actually predicting what's going to come. That's a whole different thing. He's saying, watch out, be careful. You don't want to cut it out, boys. God is coming. It's not some after-the-fact message. So he says in verse, if you look at verse 5, all this is because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the house of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? What is Judah's high places and not Jerusalem? Therefore I will make Samaria a heap of rubble, a place of planting vineyards. I will pour her stones into the valley and lay bare her foundations. All her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I shall destroy all her images. Since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes, as the wages of prostitutes, they will be again used. I want you to note Jacob's transgressions or the sins of the house of Israel. Micah, at this point in this passage of Scripture, does not say a whole lot about the content of this sin, except for the word transgression and this accompanying word sin speaks of actual rebellion against God. It is the willful criminal infraction of a covenant, a promise that two people have made, and then the one says, You're not, and, and raises their hand high against God and says, I I'm going to do what I want and hurt who I want. And, and as long as I'm taken care of, I don't care. I'm the one who's going to get what's, what I want. And what's really interesting here is, is, is the judgment is not to the pagans and the Gentiles. Although God does, you read through his word, he, he will come in at a certain point. And he always talks about judging the pride of these nations who have come against Israel. But this is about the house of God. This is about the people of God. This is about people, as we go through this book, who should know better. This is about people that when he comes in, he says, it is people who have entered into a covenant with me, and in this covenant of love relationship, they stood and they've raised their hand and they have given me What's called this high-handed look of saying, I could care less what you say. I'm doing my own thing. 
Now, we'll read into that farther as we go along, but all I want you to note as we go through this is that this devastation comes, it says in verse 6. In verse 7, it talks about the fact that they've turned away, and, and it says idols will be broken, temple gifts burns, images destroyed. And then note this at the very end of verse 7. Since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes. In a sense, Micah is saying plainly, God's people have become pimps. Think about that. They're not really concerned. There is not a love in their heart, as you read through these passages, for the poor who are being walked over like dust. There's people who are being cheated out of of, of their farms. These small farmers, as a result of, of judgments that are through loopholes made as a person gets rich off someone else, it's It goes on. Judges are being bribed. The system is corrupt. These people who have been called to walk like this incomparably uncommon God have become so not just mundane, they've become even worse than the people around them. And God says it's got to end. It's got to stop now. So that those who are crying out, the judge comes and says the infraction can go on no longer. They had no heart for the vulnerable, weak, and oppressed, and in fact were the oppressors. They had turned from God. Their hearts had become their own idols. And knowing this, I want you to go on and note what Micah does. Look at verses 8 through 15. What I learn is God judges, God judges sin, rebellion, and the godly weep and mourn. That's a lesson of judgment. Because of this, verse 8, I will weep and wail. I'll go about barefoot and naked. That's, you know, putting on sackcloth. Can you just imagine this guy? He's going around, he's sharing this message, and he's, he's in mourning. I howl like a jackal and moan like an owl, for her wound is incurable. That, that idea of incurable is that, the idea that the nation has crossed a line from which there is no returning. God must discipline. And what the line is, I don't know. It has come to Judah, has reached the very gate of my people, even to Jerusalem itself. And here's the great lesson. The godly weep and mourn. When I was thinking about this message and preparing it, I, I, I sent out to a number of people to pray. Because uh, this is not an easy, this is going to be raw. One of the elders sent back to me, I will certainly be praying for you. My time in studying Job has shown me that it is clear that there are times when people suffer because of sin, but there are also times when people suffer for other reasons. And it has also shown me that it is not our place, as the three friends did, to diagnose why someone is suffering, but to show compassion to all who suffer. Another in response to great insight, it's easy to judge instead of forgive and minister to the hurts and needs of those who are hurting. I just want to share with you what bugs me about Pat Robertson's response is it seems to me inappropriate and heartless. Whether it's true or not at this point, I don't even want to talk about. I just want to talk about the timing, the appropriateness of it. Imagine me coming up to you. Let's say you have a child, a son, who was killed in an auto accident due to driving drunk. Okay? You're in great pain right now. It's fresh. It's maybe hours from when it happened. And I come up and I say, you know, he deserved it. He chose to make a pact with a bottle of alcohol earlier that evening, didn't he? And even the kids who weren't drinking in the car, they should have known better. What would you think? 
whether that's true or not. What I find is interesting is, is the examples that you see here in Scripture. They're godly examples. Verse 8, he weeps, mourns, and he goes around howling and moaning. He does make the statement that God judges, God's judging sin. God is coming to judge this sin. You've crossed the line. I don't know what that is for you, but it is true that God says that to people and God says that to nations. I don't stand as judge to make that, but you in your own heart will know. If you are in a place where you know you've, you're, you're walking away from God and you're continuing to walk away from God and you hear the warning of God and you feel the pang of His love calling you and you continue to walk away. I don't know what the line is, but God says there's a line at a point when it becomes incurable that God must discipline, He must reprove, He must bring you back. Micah's example is verse 8. And then he goes on and he says in verse 10, Tell it not in Gath. Anybody, does that sound familiar? If, if you're a student of the Bible, it's a very um, well-known phrase in the nation of Israel. It's a quote found in 2 Samuel chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. When David has been running from Saul for years, and, and Saul was a man living in his flesh, he had run away from God, he had, he had been doing things even to the point where he went to a witch and asked her for a prophetic word and for some understanding. He had done everything he could. He had been so separated from God that finally... Saul dies in battle against the Philistines. A person comes to David, and David has told this message that Saul and his house has fallen. Saul has been killed. And the messenger thought he would be thrilled to hear it. He thought David would be just ecstatic to hear that his, his enemy had finally fallen. And it says that David responds and he says, Tell it not in Gath, which was the Philistine area that had actually destroyed the king Saul. David didn't gloat. He didn't say he had it coming. He didn't have an ounce of self-righteousness in him. In fact, when you read what David has to say when he heard the news, he says this, Then David and all his men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them, just like Micah. And they mourned and they wept and they fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan, for the army of the Lord and the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And then Samuel goes on and says in 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, David ordered that the men of Judah be taught this lament of the bow. He wrote a song out of the depths of his own sorrow for this person who had tried twice to take his life. He, he writes a lament. Your glory, O Israel, lies slain on your heights. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad, and lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice and begin to gloat. And this is significant for Micah, because Micah is also this small-town boy from Judah, is thinking about the house of Saul and how that fell. Now, soon, in his mind, he sees what God is showing him, that the house of David will fall, and he can hardly believe it. If the house of Saul was a big deal, this was much bigger. And in his heart, he could do nothing but like David, and that was break in sorrow. And all we can do, I think, in these times, when something as devastating as that happens, I don't know what God's doing, but I do know this, that the godly mourn, they weep, they wail, and they say, God... We just we pray for a spirit of repentance on our hearts and lives that we would all be right with you. And so Micah, this country boy from a small town in Judah, goes on and he starts to wax eloquently because he's not afraid to say ahead of time. He's not afraid to, to, to give the warning to the people. He's not afraid to say, here's the truth. If you continue in this way, there will be judgment. That is a message that we should give ahead of time. But in the moment, he weeps and he wails. 
And he begins a section of a list of towns. And with each town, there's a wordplay. In a sense, the name of the town portends its doom. And I'm just going to read it to you the way it would sound in, in, in his day. Tell it not and tell, which is the, is the city Gath. Weep not at all, which is Akko, this, another city. In dust town, Beth Orphra, in dust town, roll in dust. Pass on in nakedness and shame, you who live in beauty town. Those who live in come out town, do not come out. One of the commentators said the inhabitants of going forth or come out town do not go forth to battle because from fear before the enemy, they cover behind their walls and they, they cower behind the walls. Take stand, town, is in mourning. Its protection ability to stand is taken from you. Those who live in bitter town writhe in pain, waiting for sweet relief. So he's using these word plays on all the names of the towns. Disaster has come from the land, even to the gate of Jerusalem, you who live in team of chariot city. Harness the team to the chariot. Lachish, one of the chariot cities built by Solomon and fortified by Rehoboam, was a city that had chariots and, and horses. And what's interesting is he uses a subtle wordplay here in the Hebrew. There's two words for teams of horses, a team of harnessed chariot horses and a team of harnessed race horses. And what he says is the paraphrase it is you who live in team of horse town, harness your war chariots to your race horses and get out of town fast. Judgment's coming. You, especially, he says to this city, this chariot city, were the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion. For the rebellion or transgressions of Israel were found in you. Therefore you will give parting gifts, and parting gifts means dowry or a sense of tribute, to bridal town, Moorish Gap, which is his hometown. And deception town will prove deceptive to the kings of Israel. Akzib, this town, was a great productive town. It was a workshop town. It was a place where they made all kinds of jars and clays. In fact, excavations show that handles on the pitcher, jars of, 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 of clay pitchers had a little inscription, and, and the inscription meant belonging to the king. It was this town that was so productive that all the tribute that would be paid to, to the king or to different places, it would come from this work town. And he's basically making the point that the kings will look to you and you won't be able to provide anymore. Like a, a cloud that you think might bring rain or like a staff that you might lean on, it will prove deceptive. It will not come through for you. So deception town will prove deceptive to the kings of Israel. And finally, verse 15, I will bring a conqueror against you who live in conquering town, which was one of the first towns of the system of defense. It was a chief in conquering town, according to Second Chronicles 11.7. And he who is the glory of Israel will come to bondage town, Agilom. And at this point, Mike has come full circle. And it's not accidental. He uses these words. David, who fled from Saul, went to the caves of Agilom and was delivered there when he fled there. But he is saying, you will flee to that cave and you will not find deliverance. So verse 16 says, Shave your heads in mourning. For the children in whom you delight, make yourselves as bald as the vulture. And for some of us, that might be easier than others. For they will go from you into exile, which is the last lesson. God wants reality and authentic relationship. The word exile means that they will be removed from temple and from the land which the temple housed his presence and the land was his land, they would be removed from it because 
he is basically making this statement. This is how it works. Your spiritual reality, what's going on in here, will someday be made evident out here. Israel, they were living how they wanted, they were in rebellion, and yet they brought gifts to the temple and they thought that God was just blessing all their rebellion. And God said, your hearts are so far from me. And so that you get the picture correctly, instead of you having your cake and eating it too, you need to understand what's going on in your heart because your heart is destroying you forever and destroying this very people that I've given you, this land that I've given you. And so in order for it to become clear what's going on in here, I will make what's going on in here spiritually real out here physically you will be exiled and this idea of judgment is that god wants authentic relationship so badly not because he's trying to bring you pain not because he's trying to hurt you in some way god so desires to be in authentic relationship because he knows that that is the greatest place of blessing for you. It's what your heart most longs for. And God just makes it really clear. I love you, child, so much that I will make certain that what you are heading towards will be diverted. And I love your children's children so much that I do not want them to continue down that path. I will bring it. A ref calm, you know, blowing the whistle saying, it's time. It's done. And here's the great thing about God. Everywhere we read in his word, everywhere, the only reason he'd call you to repent and warn is so that you could be in a place where you might receive his blessing. And he always says there is always a chance. And the reason there's always a chance is because he said, if you humble your hearts and you come before me with a humble and broken heart, I will. I will move into your place. I will move into that heart. Not on the basis of of your goodness, but on the basis of a heart that submits and is broken before me. And if you trust that, you can trust that all that judgment I will take, and that's the whole message of the cross, it has been placed on someone else. I've asked... um, Mark to come and to lead us in in a song that just basically is a response song, which just says, take my life, God, take my life and let it be consecrated. It means may it be given over to you. And so I'm going to ask you to stand. And as we sing and we come before him, just in humble hearts, saying, God, we want to walk in your love and the expression of that love. We're asking that you would take and 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 as we give our lives, as we just offer ourselves up to you, that you would begin to do the things in us that you have called for us to do. We pray.